Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. <laughs> okay, we're recording now. So here we are. It is Wednesday. March the 3rd is what I used to say when I was little. When's your birthday? March the 3rd. <laughs> and Did you know what you were saying? Um, I did not know I was referencing poop. No. <laughs> I thought I was saying March the 3rd. <laughs> um, and we're going to talk a little bit about how we're going to frame this Sunday. And I think we're both in a kind of in-between space right now as we speak. So we'll, we'll fumble through this a little bit. Well, I finished reading John Tucker's book for the third time, second time this morning. Yeah, oh, great. And my advice to people is that if you've not read it, um, get it and read the last chapter. Oh, interesting. If you read the last chapter first, uh-huh. You will see his conclusions and know when you go back to read it where um, he is heading for because he wants to walk this path what he calls beyond the belief paradigm. Right. And he says, and this is a quote, we transcend these limitations with absolute courage absolute wonder, absolute gratitude, and absolute love. Mm. We try to heal as many circumstantial griefs as we can. We look to connect with one another in intentional ways and see the possibility of absolute grief in each other's eyes. We embrace the power of the clear glass scientific paradigm to address the circumstantial needs of our planet, but we live in the beautiful and tragic light of stained glass that shows who we are and who can who we can be as we struggle with absolute grief. Isn't mm. that beautiful? That's beautiful. I mean, that's it in a nutshell, literally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like this idea of reading books, breaking the rules. Um, I have learned at doing my PhD that it's okay to read the intro and the conclusion and leave it at that because there's no way we can read 8,000 page books all every week, right. <laughs> especially philosophy. And, mm-hmm. you know, his book is really um, philosophy and theology kind of combined. Um, and if you're not used to reading philosophy, philosophy is dense. Mm-hmm. And I had not read philosophy in some time when I started my PhD program. So I think that language can really trip, trip us up. Um, I used to say that I think people like Plato and Socrates, all those kind of old guys were from which, you know, all philosophy is a footnote to Plato needed really good editors because there's so much convoluted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't find John Tucker to be that convoluted, but it's philosophical. And, yeah. you know, philosophy is, is a lot of, uh, a lot of thinking about thinking, mm-hmm. <laughs> which can really get us stuck. I used to think, well, 
I still think actually it would be great for us to have um, children's book or young adult books of philosophies or reinterpret philosophy in that language mm -hmm. so that it can be clearly understood and applied. <laughs> well, you might remember that after I first read his book, I used an illustration that he uses in the, in the book Zero Theology of the optical illusion that you can look at one way and it's a duck and you can look at it another way and it is a rabbit rabbit it's <laughs> mm -hmm. a very old optical illusion and i love optical illusions like Me that and have ever since i was a kid i think for the same reason that i like kaleidoscopes oh. and um you know Somebody asked me yesterday, what, what do you teach in ordinary life? And the answer to that is that I want to teach uh, a way of, of, of living based on the teachings of right now, Jesus, but we have used the teachings of Buddha as well, to transcend any one specific dogmatic or religious position. Mm -hmm. This is my one of my favorite, it alludes to one of my favorite things I remember you saying <laughs> is we can dig 10 wells, 10 feet yeah. deep, or we can dig one well, a thousand yeah. feet deep, and that's yeah. where all the waters went, run together. Mm -hmm. And I, I think of that so often, if, if I could summarize the influence of ordinary life on me in one sentence, I think that would be it. Mm -hmm. Go deep and that's where all the waters run together. Yeah, and, and you know, we we in this culture, in America, in Western culture, um, I think that Marcus Borg is right about this. We live in, a, he says, a Christ-obsessed culture. And he got that... Um, illusion from not some some novelist that I'm blo blocking on right now. Uh, but we grew up in this being indoctrinated in, in the Jesus story. I mean, you just can't get around it. If you live in a culture where Christmas is both a federal holiday and a religious holiday, um, there's no way that you cannot uh, get the story somehow communicated to you in popular media. And so I think it makes perfect sense to try to, as you, the word you use, and I do too, but you used it, we need to re deconstruct that story so that we can construct something else. And if you've grown up in this culture thinking that what you see is only a rabbit, then those people who see ducks look sort of odd to you. Right. That's right. So that, that reminds me, you know, um, in that movie, In and of Itself, mm -hmm. when the magician is identifying people by the tags they took at the very end of the movie, there's one woman in the audience that he goes up to and he just whispers something to her. Mm-hmm. And then she sits down. Well, Scott Wells, no, mm -hmm. uh, another guy, another union analyst told me 
that that woman is um, a performance artist. Okay. There's been a documentary made about her life because it's called The Artist is Present. Mm -hmm. And we just finished watching that last night. Ah, so you returned to it. <laughs> and I wanted, yeah, it took us three times to get through mm -hmm. it because it's a little, it's a little out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, at her last installation in MoMA, Museum mm -hmm. Modern Art in New York, one of the installations had two totally nude people standing in a doorway facing each other and you had to squeeze between them to get <laughs> into the next room. Wow. That's a little iffy. And I said to my beautiful bride last night, I said, you know, this is what Ken Wilber is talking about when he says somebody who is at two stages of a development above us looks crazy. Right. And so this woman kind of looks nuts, but uh -huh. she's, she had thousands of people lining up to come sit opposite her in a chair at MoMA. She sat in a chair seven hours a day, six days a week for seven months never said a word and all she did was people would come and sit down across it from her and she would look at them is this like the practice that you and sherry do at the end of your being one seminar where we make eye contact for 30 seconds to a minute is it like it's, that is it intentional eye contact or it's is intentional it... eye contact uh -huh. but it's it goes on we never could figure out if there was a time limit for uh -huh. how long people could sit there. There must have been, but uh, I, I'm sure that it was at least five, maybe 10 minutes that people sat there and looked at this woman and she looked back at them. Wow. So I'm just wondering, were there emotional responses to it? And would people leave with something? Did she have emotional responses to it? Was What was the sort of premise? That, like, what did people, I don't want to well, say it like cheapen it, but get from this sustained eye contact? Some people uh, would sit on the periphery of the installation and just watch people sitting huh. across from her. And they would sit there for hours, just huh. like her. She would leave each one of those days absolutely exhausted my bad and then go back and do it again the next day some people would sit across from her and they would smile uh some people would have involutional tears just running down their faces huh. um and i want to i want to say this that the last person on the last day who sat across from her was one of her, I think her first husband, she's been married several times. And after he had sat there for a while, he got up and then went across and kissed her. And um, he said, he was interviewed a number of times in this documentary, as was one of her other husbands, who also sat across from her. Uh, this man said, um, I thought when I was married to her that she was in love with me. 
And what I realized later was that she is in love with the world and I am part of the world. Hmm. And so they have maintained a loving relationship ever since. And so did the other man who is also one of her husbands. Yeah. Um, but she has a way of thinking and relating that is really in the artist archetype. Sure. There's, and, there's something really beautiful about that sort of creative, expressive archetype. I mean, and I'm not trying to be arrogant here, but for sure I have some of that, right? Like as an artist, as mm -hmm. someone who can make things with my hands or imagine something and make it, but I don't live in that space all the time. And I'm just sort of sitting here listening to you talk about her and sitting in that space all the time. Well, even for seven months, seven hours a day of making eye contact, it is um, overwhelming, it's raw, it's vulnerable. And our culture doesn't make space for people to live, to be in love with the world in that sort of open, vulnerable, seeing kind of mm -hmm. way. There's a kind of, so there's a part of me right now as you're talking, that feels a little bit sad um, because when I'm deep in a creative space, while it's life-giving and fulfilling and I come away from days where I spend making art feeling like nurtured and nourished, but I also feel lonely because there's a process that you can't totally share. Mm -hmm. So my social self longs for that shared experience, you know, mm -hmm. and I think there is a loneliness mm -hmm. for that creative artist archetype, you know. Mm -hmm. Robert Johnson, a man who was one of my teachers and Robert's analyst was Carl Jung. Yes. Yeah. So I'm in apostolic succession. That's right. And I guess that makes me an apostolic succession too, although you've never been my psychological supervisor. So anyhow, go ahead. So uh, Robert said that we all get wounded in our childhood, some more significantly than others. Mm. And that we have to learn to live with our wounds heroically or neurotically. And um, there's, a, there's another thing that Jung was really clear about, you know, is that our aberrant behaviors are misguided attempts to find healing for our, our wounds, for our anxieties. And, and uh, anyway, Robert said that we learn to live with our, our wounds heroically. And he said, those who have been significantly wounded, who do learn to live with those wounds heroically, turn out to be our great artists, mm -hmm. our great healers, our great teachers. And so, um, yeah, you're looking, uh, let's take the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it's like to be raised in an Eastern culture, but he was taken from his parents when he was two. Right. And I would think that that would have, that would present any human being with something significant to struggle with. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And he's done it in a pretty heroic way. Right. Yeah, gosh. Uh, so I'm, I'm really thinking about my middle son here, um, who we adopted. Mm -hmm. um, and 
he, first of all, um, separation from your family of origin, no matter what the quality of that family of origin is, is traumatic. It, it's just traumatic. Second of all, he, um, you know, the Dalai Lama, you say, was removed from his parents' household at age two. Um, my son did not come home to live with us until he was six weeks old. So for six weeks, he was bumped around from caregiver to caregiver to caregiver, four caregivers in six weeks. Um, it's part, it was a, 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 it was an interesting part of the adoption process. You had to, you know, kind of open up this paternal consent period and you either had to wait, wait it out for six weeks or the, the known father would sign over his rights and Cole's birth father did not sign over the rights. So, but I, I think about the, the wounds of that period of time of not, of not having a consistent attachment. And anyhow, I mean, that's just really coming up for me, right? Like this, this, our attachment wounds. I really think that so much boils down to our attachment wounds. Almost everything could be pointed to attachment. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know, you know, sometimes when we, when we get so frustrated with um, his behaviors and, and, and he, he presents in such a way that he's very emotional, which means he can be really angry and mean or really tender and sweet. And there's a lot of in-between for him. And when we respond well and connect with the hurt, it goes much better. But when we respond frustrated and kind of like, what is going on here? It pushes away. And it's there's so such a dance in parenting and caregiving and child rearing I think Cindy Wigglesworth said it right between tough and tender. Mm-hmm. And when we know a child has wounds, like mm. being removed from a home, does that mean we have to be less tough sometime? How does that, you know, I mean, it's just that balance. And so many of us as parents don't do it right all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we we all do the best that we can with the tools that we have at the time. Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons that there's a saying that people make better grandparents than they do parents. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is is that we have less need to quote control our grandchildren, sure. and uh, our our parental identity is not wrapped up in the behavior of our grandchildren. Whereas parents, that's that's a different, very different kettle of fish, as they yeah. say. Yeah. But it, it's um, how how we get introduced into the world is what we were talking about. About you know whether you see the rabbit or whether you see the duck depends a lot on your tribal origins and then developing the willingness to step outside of that and. Um, some people have a difficult time because they feel the need to fight with it. Yeah. And that binds you all that much closer to it. Yeah. I, I, I've seen over the years people who've been abused by parents, particularly by fathers. And they will say, a man will say, I want absolutely nothing to do with my father. As a matter of fact, I, I intend to be exact opposite to him. 
And they're not aware of how that binds them to their father even more tightly. Because if you're going to be opposed to something, you have to keep that oppositional uh, object in your mind all the time. Yeah, there's the, a friend of mine who's a systems um, thinker um, framed it in this way. We're always connected. The choice is whether we connect in the light or we connect in the dark. And conflict mm -hmm. is a way of connecting. You know, we connect through anger and conflict. Mm -hmm. So often, I, as you just said, some people fight with it. I just, of course, pictured one of my favorite images in the Bible, which is Jacob wrestling the angel, mm -hmm. right? It's just that struggle. <laughs> and um, moments of freedom of, from the struggle arise for sure. And that's when we, I think you call that your, the spiral stair. That's when we arrive yeah. at the light and we take a breath and we're equipped and we're empowered to take the next descent when it inevitably comes. But that is, um, that is, that is, that is life, the spiral stair and the struggle. You know that, that we talked Sunday about walking the path between mm -hmm. the trivial on the one hand and, and the in, infant on the other hand, to be infantilized or trivialized. And um, I thought after that of a line that I heard Jim Hollis mm given a talk that he did one time. He said that we wake up every day and there are two vultures sitting on the foot of our bed. One is anxiety and the other's lethargy. Mm. And we have to learn to navigate between anxiety and lethargy, not to be frightened, not to let fear run our lives, but also not to give up, not to yeah. say this is not, this is worth a struggle. And, uh, to continue to dig that well a thousand feet deep. And uh, sometimes the digging is tough. Yeah, so, so you know, sometimes it seems that what we put our faith in, if that's the right word to use here, is the struggle. You know, we put our faith that the struggle will lead to something, but the truth is it, it's not, you know, I think we said this also, is that there's not a place to get. It's just to be, right here where you are. And then all of a sudden, right here where you are begins to shift. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there's that, you know, non-dual kind of, and that's, that's the, that's the grand trickster of life is this sort of, um, <laughs> ha, gotcha. You know, you thought this was hard and you weren't moving forward, but all of a sudden you're in a different place or all of a sudden you're in, you know, that, that, playfulness of the trickster I think is um, what life can give us what even struggle can give us you've often said that Buddhists are some of the happiest people you know mm -hmm. and I wonder if it's just that kind of playfulness with struggle like ah here you are again <laughs> you know so I, I hope it comes together for us this week because I want to talk about uh, not I don't want to limit to this but I, I want to see Jesus as a trickster yeah. As, a, as a masterful trickster, I'll, I'll give you a Jesus story that will make your brain sore. Mm -hmm. Two men went up to the temple to pray. And one prayed, God, I thank thee that I am not like this worthless publican over here. 
uh, I do this, I pay my tithes, I worship, I do this, I've never done this, I'm such a, I'm a good servant of yours. I thank you that I'm not like that guy. Mm -hmm. And that guy stood over in the corner and said, Lord, have mercy upon me. Now, the moment you identify with either one of those, you're trapped. Mm -hmm. If you say, well, I'm not like that publican, I keep tempted to say Republican, and I would, we would lose some of our audience if I did that. I'm not like that publican. You are. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not like that Pharisee, but the minute you say that, you're like that Pharisee. That's right. And the moment you take the position, well, no, I'll be the poor sinner who, had, well, now you're bragging. Right. You're trapped. Gosh, yeah. I, I, I have this picture in my mind of like the crazy eight where you just uh -huh. kind of keep looping back and forth between those two, right? Or mm -hmm. whatever two, whatever crazy eight model you want to use. Mm-hmm. And so there's a point where you have to interrupt the crazy eight, right? And you just kind of have to get off that crazy eight thinking to not over-identify with one or the other and how tempting it is. You know, we get so attached to our identity. Um, I, I think one of the things about dis-ease in our culture is the identification with disease, my cancer my depression, mm -hmm. my, you know, we, we sort of identify with these things as if it has some being a hold on us. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I think if we released it, I don't know. I mean, do you ever think about that? Like how, how we identify with the sort of uh, problems or um, um, dis-ease or issues that we face is also how easy or hard it is to let go, to move, to shift. Yeah, I have thought about that, that we, we, again, it falls into that whole category of me of not putting a label on something. Mm -hmm. I mean, because all labels are temporary, they're all traps. You know, the minute I say, well, at least I'm healthy, <laughs> then I get a diagnosis of cancer, and then, oh, now I have cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not healthy. So, well, at least I have a lot of money <laughs> until you lose it all. Right. Or at least I'm married until your spouse dies. Yeah. And so the, the labels are very, very tricky. You know, to stay as far away from them as possible. And yet they give us some sense of belonging in the world, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's again, this, this dance of not getting too attached to the label. It can be useful if you use your labels um, in certain settings to um, mm -hmm. connect with a group, right? Mm -hmm. But to not become overly attached to those labels is, mm -hmm. is, is the work. So uh, here's another piece of genius in John mm -hmm. Tucker's book that mm -hmm. I love. Tucker says, it is for the truly religious person, the authentically religious person, it is the solemn obligation to stay within the community you're in and call it always to a higher ethical goal. Mm. 
This is what the prophets did. This is what Jesus did. Jesus remained within Judaism, always in dialogue with his tradition, hoping to reform it, mm-hmm. calling it forward and saying, hey, let me show you what the law really looks like. And this whole business that we've been doing, going through the Sermon on the Mount, although now we're kind of bogged down going through the Lord's Prayer syllable by syllable. Uh, <laughs> letter by letter. Remember, I focused on the O one day. <laughs> and and um, it, it, But what, what he says in that whole sermon, or what the early community heard out of that was, you know, you have heard the law to say ABC, but here's what I think it means. And it gives it a new interpretation, but always wanting to stay within the community and call the community to a higher ethical goal. I think that's what we we are challenged to do currently in the United States. Yeah. And and not, not to lose sight of some of the apoc- apocalyptic things that have happened because of uh, George Floyd and uh, because of the coronavirus and our big temptation is going to be to fall back into business as usual Oh gosh! and yeah. we can't yeah. afford to do that yeah for sure I mean and also if you know we kind of jokingly say oh man I want to move to New Zealand <laughs> or something like that but part of the reason that that sounds so great or like a fantasy is because if we go to New Zealand we have no we have no stake there it's just like here we are, you know, and we leave the struggle. And so in some ways, then we leave the growth. And I, I for sure think that there are times when you need to leave a broken relationship, if you mm-hmm. want to put it that way. And, mm-hmm. and, and you need to learn how to step back and find space to um, tend to the self, tend to the soul, tend to the psyche, um, that the sort of politics of joy, if you will. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a moment right now where I'm kind of like, I don't want to associate with Texas. Why did our governor just lift the mask, you know, lift mask wearing when we've got all strains of COVID running around here? Houston, Texas has the yeah. enviable honor of being the only city in the United States that has all of the variants. Yeah. Currently. yeah. We have all of the new variants. And the news that I heard most recently is that the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine do not protect against the Brazilian variant. So we, uh, I think we're facing another, let's just see where things are let's in two weeks. Let's just see where things are. I know. I mean, it just, it's just really intense. Um, so we've talked a lot about being in the struggle. <laughs> um, I did have a dog-eared something. I don't know if you were, were close to ending, but I dog-eared something we got on the topic of of the path and the way mm-hmm. last week with Sarah Grant and Jesus and um it, it turned me to reading the Tao Te Ching a little bit and mm-hmm. I love this interpretation of the Tao Te Ching by Ursula K. Le Guin so it's from a she wears a feminine lens mm-hmm. and it's a really beautiful translation of it but I thought I'd read one because I it it, it gets to that place of interrupting the crazy eight. The Tao is the way, and this, the way is how we interrupt the crazy eight and just be, just be on the spiral stair wherever we, wherever we are, which again is hard. <laughs> um, but the, um, yeah, anyways, I'll read one. But it says, number 25 of the Tao Te Ching, she writes, imagining mystery, 
There is something that contains everything before heaven and earth it is. Oh, it is still unbodied, all on its own, unchanging, all pervading, ever moving, so it can act as the mother of all things. Not knowing its real name, we only call it the way. If it must be named, let its name be great. Greatness means going on. Going on means going far, and going far means turning back. So they say the way is great, heaven is great, earth is great, and humankind is great. Four greatnesses in the world and humanity is one of them. People follow earth, earth follows heaven, heaven follows the way, the way follows what is. Mm. So if um, the goal of the spiritual journey is to leave home, mm -hmm. paradoxically, it means being at home wherever you are. And being at home means putting down roots. Yeah. And taking responsibility for where you are. Mm -hmm. And for the network of associations that you find yourself in. So, so leaving both. home is always a return to home. It's kind of yeah, like the poet David White says, it's like, once you recognize you are in exile, that's your return to home. Right. That's when you're on your way back. So paradox. So, <laughs> I, I, I want 